Hello and welcome to the Stories About Autism podcast. We're back. This is episode one of season three and we've had a bit of an extended break which wasn't really planned to be honest. Uh, Life kind of got in the way. Uh, If you've been following my blog on Facebook and Instagram you'll probably know that uh, life's been challenging shall we say over the last few months. Um, But anyway uh, I've got some Three episodes already recorded and lots of guests lined up. So yeah, here we are with a new new season. If this is the first time you've tuned into the podcast, my name's James. I'm the dad of two boys, Tommy and Jude, and they're both autistic. Each week on here, I get to speak with a special guest who tells us their own story about autism. I speak with autistic adults, parents of children with autism, and professionals who work in the autism community too. Ever since my eldest son Jude was diagnosed about nine years ago, my life's been pretty much dominated by autism. I've been reading about it in books and blogs, researching online, attending courses, watching documentaries, and just generally talking to as many people as I can within the autism community. I've done everything I can to educate myself, to to try and be the best dad I can for Tommy and Jude, and just so I can understand autism better and help them better. By interviewing each guest, not only am I learning more about autism, but hopefully I'm teaching the world a little bit about it as well. I think you'll see from everyone I speak to that everyone has their own unique story, which means everyone on the spectrum is completely different too. This week, I'm joined by a very special guest, Carly Jones, MBE. I think it's definitely the first time I've sat down and spoke with someone who has an MBE. So uh, Carly is a mum of three, three girls. Uh, two of whom are autistic, and it was when her daughters were diagnosed that Carly actually got her own diagnosis too. We get to talk about the diagnosis process and all the feelings that were stirred up around it, how she felt as a mum watching her daughters be diagnosed and what it's meant to them uh, as they've been growing up, but also for herself and what it meant to her getting that diagnosis so late and how it's changed her life. Carly's now a massive autism advocate, so we talk all about advocacy and the work she's been involved with, and that's how she come to receive her MBE. I'm sure from listening to the interview you'll agree that Carly's extremely passionate about autism in women and girls, and raising awareness and improving diagnosis in those areas too. If you enjoy this episode, please could you leave me a review on iTunes, it really helps more people find the podcast and would love to get your feedback, so feel free to send me a message or comment on Instagram or Facebook too. Anyway, let's get to it. Here it is. Here's me and Carly. Carly, hello. Hi, James. How are you doing? I'm very good, thanks. How are you? Well, a slight flu, so sorry for the uh, the husky the husky voice, <laughs> um, but apart from that, very well, thank you. Well, I'm, I'm sure the listeners will appreciate your husky voice. Don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> Um, so thank you for joining me today and uh, taking the time to to tell everyone your story thank you should we start I mean I've been following you on Twitter for a while and I've seen uh, sort of all the amazing things you've been getting up to but for the listeners do you want to just give give everyone a quick little intro to you and your family yeah sure so um, my name's Carly I'm 36 I was diagnosed um, as autistic or Asperger syndrome as it was still still diagnosed then at 32 but prior to being diagnosed I, I had um, three daughters um, and and two of those were also diagnosed beforehand so they were diagnosed at two and at six years of age right. and it was um, it, it was actually 
their diagnosis, which prompted mine. Although we know for, I say we, by we, I mean my parents now, had known them something a little bit different, mm. <laughs> um, to put it mildly, um, from a very young age. It was only then that it kind of all made sense for a lot of us. <laughs> it's amazing how often that's happening at the moment, isn't it? That um, Especially in mothers, uh, sort of finding out their children autistic and then ending up with a later diagnosis themselves. Yeah, it is. It's. Um, it, I think it's actually quite lovely. When when I was first well first aware that um well actually it goes way back. It's it's a it's a real long story. I was, mm. when I was fourteen, my parents took me to see a psychologist. Um, I was really struggling with uh, particularly the sensory side. If I look in hindsight, with the bright lights shut down, and I'm, I'm not the sort of person um, who goes into meltdown. I go into shutdown. Right. Um, so the way I would best describe that is if somebody has a meltdown, it's almost um, it's very uh, external and you might see somebody um, lashing out on you know the environment around them and objects or whatever. But if, if you're a shutdown person, it's very internal. So instead of lashing out on things externally to you, you might lash out on yourself um, and not in a violent way either at times, just, you know, you feel very, very sad or. You want to be on your own, or you might not be able to talk, and um, and it just makes you feel very, very sad, and like you just need to be left alone. A bit like when you see the dog and they're unwell, they kind of hide themselves in a corner. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I would describe my shit. I'm just like, I'm just gonna roll up here, and again, um, wouldn't be away from everything. So I was more of a shutdown person. So I would be spending a lot of time at weekends, um, wanting to to be alone in my room and my parents quite worried so they took me to see a, a psychologist at 14 who diagnosed me as lazy which lazy. is hilarious yeah which is hilarious because I've, I've been told I'm one of the la- <laughs> least laziest people they know S- sounds like so. a psychologist that's a bit lazy with the diagnosis yeah. <laughs> rather than Pro- uh... a psychologist that has been a projective psychology on his poor 14 year old subject yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah <laughs> uh, that was the diagnosis in 1996 Thank you. Um, and then at uh, 27, uh, this is actually after both my girls diagnosed, um, I went to see a local, um, well, I went to see my GP and said, oh, you know, I think we're on the autistic spectrum as well. And they said, oh, well, you know, there's only so much mental health people can take. Because like, I don't actually think I've got any mental health issues, hmm. um, apart from my raging anxiety. Um I just think of autistic. So I put me down the mental health route and I saw, uh, uh, again, another psychologist um, who who didn't diagnose me. Um, and he it's quite embarrassing, actually, because I, um, I had to do a conference uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about how autistic women are left. And even sometimes when they get to the point of being in a diagnosis room, they're still not diagnosed yeah. you, know, be, you know, from clinical experience or whatever. Um, and women just looking different. So I had to perform this presentation talking about this with the doctor that didn't diagnose me. No like, way. It, it was brilliant. And we're really good friends now. And, uh, <laughs> and, and he, he was like, this is, you know, massive elephant in the room. Let's not talk about it until we're on stage. And I was like, this is genius. <laughs> and um, and we didn't. And we were just, I was like, why didn't you diagnose me? So anyway, we're good chums now. But... Um, <laughs> but <laughs> We didn't have wow. the knowledge then. Uh, I, I, used to, I still do enjoy a bit of acting. And um, his viewpoint then was that if you were um, interested in the arts then, or acting, then perhaps you wouldn't fit the, the, the very rigid really? then, stereotype of autism. Yeah. 
um, because we put yourself in someone else's shoes and all this kind of thing. Right, so we, okay. yeah, we, 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 we spoke about this in front of a room of about 200 people and um, it's all good now. But then I was <laughs> finally diagnosed by Dr. Judy Schools, the legendary Dr. Judy Schools of uh, the Lawn and Wing Centre in Bromley. Yeah. And that was at 32 and I filmed it and there's a, actually a film online if anyone wants to watch that um, called Epidemic of Knowledge, um, which was made in 2014. And is that with the National Autistic Society, that film? Is that? No, it was an inter- independent me oh, okay. and producer, a good friend of mine, uh, Clive Elkerton. Um, we, we made that and that went off to Cannes and, and the UN in oh, India. Wow. And yeah, it went, it went everywhere, which was great. Um, mm. it was, uh, it was all done for free and, uh, and it's on, it's online free if anyone wants to, wants to watch it. It's on Amazon and, um, and a, and a website called Real House, which is R-E-E-L House, if anyone wants to watch it. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll grab the links for that off you later and, and add it to the sort of show notes so that everyone can, can find that because I think that'd be really useful. So, Okay, so going back to, you said the first psychologist you saw was when you was 14 and because yeah. you were sort of shutting down. And Do you remember maybe before that, sort of, I don't know, did, did you feel different at school, that you were different than, than the other children or were you having any struggles? Oh, yeah, definite struggles. So um, I can remember my memory, my short-term memory is pretty bad. Go up the stairs, forget why I've gone up there. But but my long term memory is exquisite, which which I have I didn't realise was a bit of a, a, a talent. <laughs> um, I, I, I a friend on Facebook got in touch with me after years, and I told him what he wore on his first day at school. No way! Um, wow. Yeah, because our first day we could wear what we want, and I'm, by school I mean at four. And, <laughs> by, uh, and you could like, remember what he's wearing at four. And, yeah, oh yeah, God. I remember his whole outfit, the shoes, the socks, everything. And I just thought that was normal. Apparently, it's not. So um, my my photographic long term memory is really good. But uh, but yes, yeah, so I can remember being oh, maybe two or three, and um, and I went to like a toddler group, I guess toddler yeah. group preschool type thing, and everyone was playing, charging around, having fun, and I was just terrified. I was really scared. And we had this beautiful wooden uh, like red London telephone box. And I would just hide in it all the time, pretend to make phone calls. And then after, you know, after that, I would just cry for my mum the whole time and, and I couldn't be left. So my mum eventually got a job at this nursery straight play school place just so I would go because I was not going without her. And I feel quite sorry for her actually because that was in the eighties, early eighties and, um, no mobile phones then. And she yeah. said it was really annoying. She would drop me off, get home. And even before she'd opened the front door, she could hear the landline ringing. <laughs> so come and pick up your child. So, um, so yeah, she got a job there in the end. And then I same happened in primary school. Went to primary school. My mum got a job as one of the learning support assistant PTAs, whatever you call them. So I could attend there, which was quite embarrassing. I, I wear quite big glasses. My sight's not great. And uh, this boy was teasing me. So I decided to super glue into his chair. <laughs> and he had to take his trousers off the class. I thought that was hilarious. I was quite rebellious. That's, that's a good but, comeback, yeah. Well, yeah, I didn't. I didn't really know what to say back. I didn't have the <laughs> the vocabulary. I guess I just sit into his chair. So that was embarrassing. Because <laughs> I'm obviously, you don't, it's worse. You don't just get told off by the teacher. They they get your mum in, you know, because your mum's probably in another classroom somewhere. So, uh, so that 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 was good for me. Perhaps not for my mother. And um, and I found. I mean, I'm rubbish at netball. My coordination's not great. I can't ride a bike. I can't swim. Um, but I always ended up like on all the sports teams and I think it's just because it was a case of my mum like goodness goodness sake just put her on the sports team do something with her yeah um and I 
and I didn't realise how much social engineering my mother had done on my behalf for me to be able to participate. So when I went to secondary school, and of course, mum's like, not going to secondary school with you, um, it all kind of fell apart for me from there. Uh, and I just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't, couldn't cope. And I guess the way I did cope was, I'm, uh, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not, I have no GCSE, so I wouldn't say I was an academic person, but, um, but I've got a really high IQ. So I'm one of those, I, I, I'm not sure what type of intelligence I've got, <laughs> but, um, but it's certainly not what they teach uh, in a mainstream national curriculum school. So I'm always very interested to learn. I always know the answers. I just can't show people that I know the answers, I guess. And um, I, I went from being a bit of a boffin, actually, you know, arms up, answering all the questions to um, to rebelling. That was my, my coping mechanism. I, I discovered it was much safer to be the loudest person in the room than to be the okay. quietest so um so yeah i just i just ended up being a bit of a rebel really um and things deteriorated from there and you you mentioned that um i don't know you was feeling like sensory overload from the lights and, and things like yeah. that back then did you sort of wonder why that was like what why yeah. you were suffering so much from that compared to maybe the other kids or Yes, definitely. I didn't. I don't. Um, bright lights make me quite unfiltered. I'm a naturally unfiltered. The school person lights anyway. aren't great, are they? No, those big strip yeah. lights, and um, so that would actually make me quite naughty. Uh, and I know you know you shouldn't really use the word naughty when it comes to autism, but I was naughty. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was also autistic and, and just not coping. Um, migraines from hell. Um, the amount of brain scans I've had <laughs> for somebody my age is ridiculous because it, I've even had swelling behind the eyes. I've gone to the opti- opticians to have my eye test done, and they've gone, you've got a really big swelling behind your eye, you need to go and get a brain scan. One optician thought I had a brain tumour because oh. it was just the fact that I was, my, my body was obviously really fighting the fact that I was constantly under bright light. Yeah. And nobody could understand why. Every type of medication put me on beta blockers. They thought they had too much blood going to my brain. I, I was put on absolutely everything, and all it was was sensory overload. Um, I used to wear sunglasses a lot. And then you get, especially as a teenager, you get a bit teased. Oh, who do you think you are? Do you think you're famous? Do you think you're mm. a de- you know. And no, I just think that everybody should be wearing sunglasses in December. Um, <laughs> all of these kind of things. And, um, uh, and yeah, incredibly hard. But once you know, actually, that's part of being autistic, yeah. you think, oh, well, that's that simple then. Makes I can sense, just avoid yeah. it. Yeah, I can avoid these triggers. Okay, so that's... So that was sort of your school experience. And then let's jump forward a few years to, I mean, I guess in the years in between, were you continuing to see doctors or you just sort of carried on with life? And um, Well, I was 14 when I saw the psychologist. Yeah. Um, and then I actually fell pregnant at 15. Oh, wow. So, okay. <clears throat> yeah. So um, life took a, a, a course which had very much little about thinking about myself for a very long time mm. in every sense, be that health-wise or, or, or anything else. Um, I, I lived in a homeless hostel um, with my young daughter, was working for three jobs. Um, and so, yeah, life in between there and there was very, very busy. I got married when I was, was 18 or 19. I was, I was, I was young. I was under 20. And um, and I was married uh, until I was 25. So it was actually after I got divorced that I realised a lot of my... Uh, obviously, I've been autistic the whole time, yeah. <laughs> um, which was actually quite obvious after I'd had my girls as well. It seemed to have ramped up. 
Um, I know most women become um, very, very clean and tidy and saying it loosely, kind of that OCD, everything must be perfect. But I was extreme to the point where um, my daughter's nursery, my middle daughter, it had wooden floor and yellow walls and yellow curtains. And I would only have things in that room if they were yellow or the same colour as the wood. I was, you know, if you had a newspaper and put it on the table, it would be thrown away within 10 minutes. I, I was, and now I'm the complete opposite. I'm a bit of a hobo now. <laughs> but, but, um, or abstract. That's what my first quote. Oh, God, it's all the abstract. Okay. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just really chilled out. But, uh, but, but I was, everything had to be perfect. Everything. Myself, I stopped eating. I lived off, um, five curly whirly bars. Other chocolate bars for 100 calories are available. Um, <laughs> curly whirly uh, is a good thing. And, and, and broccoli. Um, and Diet Coke for about 18 months. So when I was 20, maybe 21, I think I weighed six stone. Gosh, wow. I was wearing like size 10 to 11 trousers, really, really unwell. Yeah. Um, and it was all to do with having to having to be in control. And I was, and I was obsessed. I was obsessed with counting calories. And, uh, and so, I, you know, and it was the pressure. I was working full time uh, in, a, in, a, in a busy marriage. And... Um, and I just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't cope with it all. And so I took, that's, that's for me was kind of taking it out on myself. I just, mm. just stopped eating. So, um, which apparently is quite, um, quite common in, in, in autistic women. I'm very, very well recovered now. I often do read the calories in something and then order a curry anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's, it's all worked out okay. But, but yeah, in those years in between, it, it was, it, you know, it was always there. Um, but it was, it was after my divorce when, Marriage is, is in, in some ways quite nice because it's a routine. Yeah. And I felt that, um, I felt that once that routine ended, I, I, I noticed that there were different things I needed to, sorry, can you bear with me two minutes? Yeah, My daughter's course. just talking. Okay. Perfect. You can borrow it. She's after the phone charger. Yes, she can. Sorry, I'll have to start that bit again, James. Yeah, that's okay. In fact, keep it in. This is, this is very common. This, this is, is, is life. real life. Yeah. Yeah. Keep it in. Very <laughs> Okay. Make sure you actually do some of your maths on it, please. Yeah, keep it in. It's fine. Um, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it was uh, it was after that that I noticed that I couldn't really cope with the change of of routine. So, how old was your your daughter when she was first diagnosed? Um, so, um, I've got just to to put it into context. Now, I've got I've got three daughters: one that's twenty, yeah. one that's sixteen, one that's um, almost eleven. Who you heard them? Who's being home educated? Um, and should definitely be doing her her yeah, maths well, online as we're talking. I, um, um, I, I read so, about uh, that the other day, so yeah, we can talk about that in in a bit. About so uh, my middle daughter, my eldest daughter, isn't diagnosed um, as autistic, and my uh, my middle daughter was diagnosed at six years old, um, and that. It's quite a funny tale. In, not funny at the time. It's funny now. Mm. Um, so when I had my youngest daughter, the, I mean, of course, in hindsight, you notice all these things before where you might have thought, oh, gosh, that was a bit different. Uh, I remember we live somewhere quite – we're close to London, but it's a bit rural. And um, it's just 20 minutes away, but we live in a, in a rural area. And this, my daughter's school brought a sheep in the classroom okay. um, for no reason, really. <laughs> don't know why they did Just that because they could <laughs> yeah we've got a sheep outside this bring in the classroom and um and this hadn't been discussed or planned so it was a bit unpredictable and um and my middle daughter really didn't cope well with that and it was actually the day after my birthday and I can remember having uh having something that was good for my birthday on the side anyway I got smashed she, you know, she was really unhappy 
And I asked her why, and she said, oh, they only brought a goat in the classroom. And then the next day there was a fire alarm, and um, and that that had a bit of a consequence as well because that was unpredictable and unplanned yeah. and had caused her stress. But the, the, the funny part is, so I'd had my youngest daughter, she was uh, six weeks premature, and uh, so I was in hospital for a while, which is obviously for my daughters that were left at home, a massive change because they 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 were being looked after by uh, their dad and my mum and dad at that time because I was in hospital with a with a premature baby and um and she came to visit us and it was the first time she'd ever met her sister and uh, she caused a bit of a scene in in the hospital ward uh, kind of swinging around the curtain really erratic and um obviously just couldn't cope with this massive change of having yeah. a little sister and <laughs> the midwife on duty came up to me and she went don't worry my daughter's autistic as well oh really yeah and I was like oh. I didn't know <laughs> I didn't know. So that was the first I, time you, you'd even thought about it. But. Yeah. So we were very lucky, actually. Within three months, you got diagnosis. And I know that's not the case now. Yeah. A lot of advocacy <laughs> goes on to, to getting those diagnosis times down. But yes, incredibly, incredibly lucky. She was diagnosed within three months. Um, and then, of course, my youngest daughter, the one that was born premature, was diagnosed um uh, just for our second birthday, just literally, I think it was a week for our second birthday. So it, that was a, a, a really busy couple of years mm. of, of learning everything I could about autism. Um, and there wasn't that much out there for girls at all. It was um, actually quite a tricky time. People didn't believe me. They uh, they said, oh, you know, well, you're just getting divorced. You're doing it for attention. That was one of them. Really? I had people, yeah. I had people say um, it's impossible for you to have two autistic girls because autism only happens to boys. Why? How? How on earth could you have two? And 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 yeah, it was horrible. Particularly as a what twenty five year old divorced young mum. Um, you know, it was hard enough trying to get support for my girls. Yeah. Then to have to come out and go, actually, me too, was terrifying. I was terrified social services would take my kids. I thought if they if they know that I'm because there was so much stigma, if they know that that I am as well, they're not going to think that I can look after them. Mm. Um, and I don't not, I don't mean to blow my own trumpet. I'm a really good mum. It's the one thing that I'm really, really good at, and I love yeah. it. And um, uh, you know, I wish I had a hundred, but um, <laughs> I, I love being mum. So um, I, it scared it scared the life out of me. But yeah, what yeah. scared me more was what scared me more than that was the fact that my children could grow up and feel that way too so just bit the bullet really and uh thought well sod it what's the worst that can happen and um and and started raising awareness there and then really okay so your daughters were were six and two you said when when they had their diagnosis so how much did you know about autism then nothing really nothing only things that you might have seen on documentaries on tv every book i picked up it was about boys um, went to parenting groups. They were great, absolutely great, actually. Run by a National Autistic Society called Early Bird. It's a three-month yeah, course that you do. Those, yeah. They're brilliant, aren't they? Yeah, it's um, really helpful. So I went to one, um, obviously for my for the daughter that was diagnosed first, and then as soon as my other daughter was diagnosed, I had to do three months again because you have to do it each time per child. I thought mm. I could be here for the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, you know, you had to write. Oh, you have to write the children's names on the boards. Yeah. Um, or bring a photo in of your children or whatever. And um and both of those three month courses I was the only one that had a girl. I felt really, really odd about that. And and any sport group went to everyone had boys and I thought we need to get a bit more bit more mm. awareness out there because we're definitely not the only ones. We're just the only ones fortunate enough to have the diagnosis and the support. So um that was yeah, really quite weird. 
Yeah, I remember like in in the early days going to courses and you know first time you ever meet other parents and you're right. I, thinking back, yeah, there was probably only one person I, at that time I met who had a daughter, mm. and I was seen as different because I had two boys, so I was mm. sort of top trumps compared to yeah. <laughs> you know some of the other family. But yeah, there yeah, there was there was one parent who had who had a girl, and that was seen as like. And I guess it played into the figures because you looked around and thought, okay, well, there's 12, 15 parents here and there's only one girl. So that those figures do make sense. Yeah. But it's, it's sad. That I it's... don't know. I think, I think, James, I think with the figures, every time we see, because they were saying it was 10 boys to one girl yeah. and then eight boys to one girl, four boys to one girl. And now <clears> most <throat> clinicians are saying it's probably two to one. I think it's the same. I just think that every time we see that statistic, say it's four to one, um, that just means there are three girls that are going to go through life without that diagnosis, without that support. Yeah. Um, but, and eventually, like me, someone eventually along the line will diagnose them. But what's what's happened in their life in between then? Because we have really significant changes to safeguard ourselves if we don't understand ourselves. Yeah, of course. Um, be that health-wise or in sexual relationships or whatever. Mm. We, um, we do, yeah, we, we need to know, I think, very, very early um so yeah statistics can be quite quite worrying um but yeah very it's quite complex isn't it but i think we've got a lot more awareness now than we did have go back to 2007 ish yeah so okay so if you don't mind sort of talking about your daughters a little bit um i'm guessing because their diagnosis came at quite different ages there's there's quite um there's i mean there's differences between every autistic person of course there is but did did you see different things in them at sort of different ages or is that sort of why one was diagnosed much earlier or just that you was much more aware because of your other daughter's diagnosis? I think my youngest di- uh, daughter was diagnosed much earlier, A, because it had only been 18 months or so since um, her sister had been in with the doctor in yeah. there and I did ask the question. I said, um, I said, you know, is my youngest daughter autistic too? And they said, don't have it in the forefront of your mind, have it in, on the back burner of your mind, um, which I guess was their very kind way of saying most likely, but mm. don't let it take over your life because she was only a tiny, tiny baby when um, when, when my her big sister was diagnosed. Um, so I think that's why she got it quickly. Also, uh, she, they're both very, very different. So um, my daughter, who was diagnosed first when she was six, she um, was a bit of a Matilda. That's the only way I can describe her, really. She's well, she's 16 now. She is very kind of um, Hermione, Matilda, very, okay. very bright, yeah. very calm, actually, blends in well, um, does a lot of acting, ironically, after, yeah, after okay. the conversation, <laughs> does loads and loads of acting. She did the, the piece for The Guardian, you know, the virtual reality film for... Um, oh, really? Was that her? Yeah, she played Layla. So she does. She does a, an awful lot of acting and 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 bits and um, some advocacy as well. But she's. It's only when things become anxious for her that you can really yeah. see it. Whereas my youngest daughter didn't have any functional speech until she was about four. Didn't babble as a baby. Didn't cry as a baby. Um, I was the envy of every woman on that postnatal ward <laughs> because I had this child that just didn't cry. <laughs> Um, but obviously that's not a good thing as you get older because yeah. crying is learning to ask for help, isn't it? So one of the first things I had to teach her too was help. Um, I think, in fact, her first word might have been help because it was like you must teach her to ask for help. She's not asking for, you know, just for her basic needs to be met, let alone help. So, um, so yeah, that was that was quite interesting. 
Um, but yeah, I think that's why she's there. But, and it's, it's what I find fascinating, actually. If I take my mum hat off and put my advocate slash wannabe researcher hat on, what I find interesting is that the, the girls are both girls. They're both got exactly the same DNA. They've both been raised in the same house and, um, and, and by the same mum. But they are completely different. Mm. And even the way their autism presents, if you like, is completely different. So it just goes to show that not every autistic person is the same, uh, that everyone, be they female, male or whatever, that we're all very, very different. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that's one of the things I learned obviously early on with my two boys as well. And, and I guess something I wasn't expecting is just how different yeah. they are. You know, when you do have very little knowledge of autism, when I first heard the word, the only thing I knew was Rain Man, you know, and it's yeah. quite stereotypical, but, but that, that's all I knew because I, I didn't know anybody who was autistic or I didn't know there was no autism in my life, so I didn't know anything about it. And yeah, I, I didn't appreciate quite how vast and wide the spectrum is and, and just how different every person who's autistic can be. Quite right. It's um, I, I, I when doing these early bird courses with the National Autistic Society ten odd years ago, when they said, um, you know, you have to come back and do it for other child. I was like, why? Well, I've already done it. Yeah. And now that, and you know, ten years later, it completely makes sense, doesn't it? Because it, it is like learning, learning again, learning how to parent again. Because yeah. the way you need to parent that 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 particular person is completely different to what you already know. Um, so yeah, I could just remember thinking, why have I got this another three months to understand it? But it is for the case of trying to put your put them at the you know the forefront of your mind uh, and how and how their autism is for them. I guess. Do you remember sort of how you felt when I guess when when your your middle daughter was was first diagnosed and as as you said, you didn't really know anything about autism before then. Like, what do you remember sort of how you felt when it when it first happened? Yeah, I can remember feeling really sad actually mm. and scared, and um, and I was this stupid. Honestly, if I go back ten years, how old were Yeah, it would be ten years ago. Seventeen, ten years ago, I would have a sit down, have a good hard talk to myself because I was like, well, you know what, this is nothing to do with us. You know, I, I, this is. Um, I reckon to do that MMR she had. Oh my goodness, and um, and I really believed that to yeah. the point where I didn't, I didn't vaccinate my youngest child because I really believed if I vaccinate her then she'll be autistic as well and when she, when she was diagnosed the, the doctor said to me she went listen you know we need to get this MMR booked in she's a year late for it it's got nothing to do with the MMR and I said um and she just looked at me and, she, and I said well how how why are they both autistic then and um, she said I think you'll find the answers in your genes i.e you yeah. are as well sweethearts <laughs> but but this is the best bit I looked in my trouser pocket. <laughs> I looked in my trousers. I took it literally. At which point she must have gone. And how much more evidence do you need? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, the answer is you know, they're just giving us some leaflets, and I shoved some of these leaflets in my back pocket. So I, I, I didn't think genes, genetic yeah. genes. I thought my genes. I've got my genes on, and um, and I did put my hand in my pocket. And at which point she just looked at me, and I kind of was like, and the penny still didn't drop. Then I'll let yeah. you know. It was it was a little while after that. And um, and just any vaccination had absolutely nothing to do with with autism. In fact, I'm autistic, and I later found out from my parents that there were a lot of vaccinations that I was not given. So um, so the fact that my daughter, one of my daughters, was diagnosed prior to having her vaccinations, and 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 I was diagnosed at 32, 
and wasn't given some vaccine. There was, there was no correlation. And even if there was correlation, does it mean causation? Anyway, that's my little rant because I, I'm really cross with Strangely myself. Strangely enough, that without meaning to try and make you feel a bit better, exactly the same thing. Um, oh, thank when, God. <laughs> you know, when Jude was diagnosed, uh, you do. You do read the, the scare stories and the, the yeah. horror stories and you you know you kind of look for a reason and there's three years between uh, Jude and Tommy and what wh- when it came round to vaccination time for Tommy yeah we delayed it and Tommy would later be diagnosed and obviously he hadn't had the vaccinations at that time so so yeah that that sort of debunks that theory as well (laughs) just a bit i'm glad i wasn't the only one that was a bit of a crowd about it but yeah i just i'm just you know it's almost as if we're trying to find something or someone to blame yeah and and i think that's that's normal um or you know obviously everyone reacts to to things differently but I, i don't think there's any wrong in that i think it's quite an emotional time when when diagnosis is first given and everyone takes different amounts of time to process things and to deal with things so if you do feel like that around that time then you know that's okay you just need to work through it and and i think definitely your attitude changes over over time anyway i must i must say that my daughter when she was diagnosed at six took it incredibly well because uh, i'm an incredibly open parent if anything's going on, we talk about it, unless obviously it's something I'm trying to protect them from. Hmm. Um, and I did explain to her why we were going to see this doctor and why they've got to maybe watch the way she plays or observe her, ask a few questions. And um, and she said, "Why?" And I said, "Well, you're not. Don't worry. You're not unwell. You're not going to hospital because you're unwell." I said, "You're perfectly fine." I said, "They just want to find out if you've got this um, thing, this thing of your brain." God. And I said to her, "I said, if you have." It probably means you're a genius. <laughs> and she was like, I'm going to the hospital to see if I'm a genius because obviously <laughs> this is a six. When she was, when they, they did her intelligence at six, was that of a 12 year old? Wow. I mean, she's now 16. I can't have a conversation with her. She's too bright. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, She's really, really, really clever. It's insanely clever. And um, self taught herself her GCSEs and got A stars and stuff. You know, she's just. She's all. She got all the good DNA. She's yeah. like got the best type of autism. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, uh, I, I, I told her this, and of course I've then got the news, and I'm actually quite sad, and I'm, I'm holding back the tears, and I'm walking out into the car park, thinking, oh god, you know. And um, and she said, mum, 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 let me borrow your phone. I'm going to ring nanny and granddad. It was just before Christmas. Uh, it was about three days before Christmas, and uh, uh, and I can remember they have Christmas songs on the radio. I started like, oh. And um, I mean, if Band Aid, you know the Band Aid song, that yeah. doesn't make you cry at a normal time. It's definitely going to make you cry. Yeah. Just that's what they tell you. Charles autistic, and I can remember feeling really sad. And uh, and she rang my mum and dad on my mobile phone. She went, "Nan, guess what? Doctor says I'm a genius." <laughs> <laughs> and um, and and I just said, and that really cheered me up actually. But I thought, well, you know, if she's that, if she's that okay about it, then maybe yeah. I should uh, I should stop being such a soppy sod. Um, but yeah, so uh, she remembered everything. Uh, but, but that was uh, that was said. So she obviously remembered that she was going there to see if she was a genius. Um, she does. I don't want to glamorise autism. She does have her struggles as well. But you know, she's a a young adult on her own right now. So that's up to her to talk about rather than me. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, it was a very interesting day, the diagnosis day. I, I think that's something that, that a lot of parents are, are quite interested in is is how how you first talk about autism with with your kids um yeah. when they're diagnosed so 
obviously that was her understanding then and that makes a lot of sense um how did you for both of them sort of talk about autism as they got a little bit older and could understand a bit more well it's it's almost the other way around james a lot of parents will message me and say well how do we start the discussion on autism and in our house it's how do we stop how do we (laughs) stop it uh which i've been told by good friends like talk about something else i don't know what to talk about yeah i have i have my one subject this is my one subject for the next 10 years come back in 10 years um (laughs) (laughs) so yes um it's it's always been something we speak about very very openly um my uh youngest daughter who was diagnosed at two there was never that time where we sat down and said, by the way, you're autistic, even though yeah. she was diagnosed before she'd remember. It's just part of our culture, of our family's culture, just as I guess if you were um, were in a family where you were farmers, it's something that you talk about every day, you would just okay. know, oh, I'm a farmer. Yeah. Or if you were um, had a particular religion that you follow daily, it's just part of our culture. So there's never had to be that moment. My daughter is surprised when people aren't autistic. That's quite strange to her. <laughs> because a lot of our <laughs> friends naturally end up being autistic or, or have some sort of disability or whatever. So um, it's it's almost the other way around for us, which might be quite strange for other people to understand, I think. I mean, yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, as you said, you, you're, there's, there's three out of the four of you who, who are autistic in the family. So mm-hmm. obviously you're going to talk about it a lot. Was there any strategies or therapies that sort of helped your daughters over the years sort of as they were progressing or is anything that you really think helped um yeah i think having a lot of time to just be yourself Mm. and at at home and and that just to be okay um i think as autistic people young or old we need safe places where we can be our authentic autistic self which is always quite strange i think for other people perhaps to hear like we take off this costume and then go home and like something out of doctor who or something but (laughs) but but it's not not that case at all um, particularly for women and girls and for boys but particularly women and girls we mask a lot so we'll go out and um, and we'll try and be I mean people do this anyway at work I think try and be the best version of yourself try to hold it without all of these things in but for an autistic person it's very natural for us to are excited you might start flapping your hands um, I didn't realize I flapped actually until my diagnosis day and my my doctor said to me the diagnosis day where I was actually diagnosed I should add and um, my doctor said to me, do you flap? I was like, no, I absolutely don't flap. And uh, she then told me some exciting news, which I think was fictitious in, in, in hindsight. <laughs> and um, and I stood up and I was flapping my hands going, oh my goodness, that's amazing, that's amazing. Jumping up and down, flapping my hands. And um, she went, I'll ask you again, do you flap? I was like, ah. Oh. <laughs> she caught me out. Yeah, she's clever. <laughs> she really caught me out. And, and eye contact, eye contact's very overrated. I can do it. I hate it. I can do it. I tend to look at people's noses, um, but then that makes me laugh because my theory of mind is so bad that I assume that they know that I'm looking at their nose, even though only I know that I'm looking at their yeah. nose. So I'll just start laughing. When people are like, why are you laughing? I've got my eyesight's not good. It's like minus 750 or something ridiculous. I'm really short-sighted. So if I take my glasses off, I can't see any more than about two inches in front of me. Everything's a cloud. I can see colour, and that's about it. So I um, I take my glasses off. When people start talking to me for a long time, I pretend that I'm cleaning them, okay. or I'll, I'll I'll just take them off for a bit, and and that's because I'm not looking at them at all. I can't see them. So um, my mum's always says to me, "You know, you need to go and get your laser eye treatment." I'm like, "No, I love it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I that, love. Yeah, it's a coping strategy, to, I guess. To have isn't the it? option. 
Yeah, it's a really good way to just avoid avoid eye contact, really. And and the weirdest thing is, and I've noticed it for quite a lot of autistic people that I that I know. Uh, I'm very very good at drawing eyes. I'm not a, I'm not an artist by any stretch. Of the thing. I can't draw a horse or anything like that, but I can draw eyes very very well. And um, I've spoken to other autistic people like, yeah, that's the one thing I can draw really well is is eyes. But yet we probably never looked in an eye. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, that's strange. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, some, maybe somebody will listen and go, yeah, actually, I can draw eyes. That's the one thing that I draw a lot when I'm doodling. I draw off people's eyes, but I can't I can't look into them. You mentioned earlier as well that uh, your youngest daughter is being homeschooled now. Yeah. So I'm guessing, obviously, at, at some point, as she's got a bit older, school's become more difficult. Yeah. it's um, She was absolutely fine until year five. In hindsight, I should have maybe pulled her out of the summer holidays of year five. When you start doing the residential trips, that caused too much anxiety. You got SATs, and that caused too much anxiety. The school she was at, just an all mainstream school, were fantastic. I can't fault them. It's it's nothing to do with, 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 with the provision itself. It's to do with the fact that it's just all becomes a bit too much. A lot of hormones as well coming in at this age. Yeah. Kind of that 10, 11 year age. And, um, and, and that seems to make things a lot different friendships change for girls and probably boys i don't know I don't, i've never had a son but when they get to this age girls tend to get into cliques or those friendship groups that were quite fluid friendship groups of five or six girls suddenly become who's your best friend um and, and girls not just my daughter but girls of this age in particular myself included i can remember it very well and my other daughter as well and you're almost on the periphery it's almost as if everyone's got their clique but but you're on the periphery of all of them uh, for five minutes, it's exhausting. It's it's soul destroying. Actually, it's it's horrible, and it gets to the point where you're going to school and and you're learning to survive rather than going to learn. And um, I just didn't want that for her. She's very very clever. Uh, again, not in a academic sense. If we looked at academics, it might be a couple of years behind. But um, but incredibly bright. She has new ideas, new questions, new solutions, um, and all these things that can't be measured in a traditional sense she can do without thinking about it just comes naturally to her so um i really want to be able to encourage her to think about um her own ideas and schools are great i'm not saying that schools aren't great um but ultimately exams and schools are about somebody that's learned about somebody else's ideas teaching younger people about the ideas they learned from someone else and then that young person telling the person that learnt them that they've remembered it. Uh, it's not new ideas. It's not original thinking. It's not new solutions. And um, and I think we've got a lot of exceptional young people who are home ed, missing out, and a massive talent to the UK. Um, we've got fantastic things such as uh, Cyber First for people who are into coding and people who are into hacking. Let's make it legal. Um, <laughs> and and I support a lot of home ed kids as well. And um, one girl, exceptional talent. One of her hobbies was hacking into other people's Instagram accounts. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, listen, if you know how to do that, and you know, she wasn't quite teenage age yet. She yeah. was young. If you are able to do that, you need to be doing cyber first. Of course, she's not in the educational system. She hasn't heard about cyber first. She's now doing cyber first, which is something that's out by the, the UK government for to encourage young, um, young, young people that are good at tech to keep us cyber safe. And, uh, and I think we're missing the trick in the UK. Mm. I think we're missing the trick with all of these home ed kids that have got so much to offer. And uh, I hope I can really help 
spread spread awareness of the opportunities that are normally spread around in educational provisions to, to those children um, so they don't miss out. And more importantly, we as a country don't miss out because there is much untapped talent, much. Yeah, it sounds like it. I hadn't heard of uh, Cyber First. Um... 11. They can start it from 11, I think. Wow. So your daughter's just started home education recently? Yeah. Yeah. Monday. Oh, wow. That... Really recently. <laughs> yeah, so it is very, very new. And how's how's the first week going? Well, at the minute, it's a bit of downtime, actually. Um, she's like, you know, we haven't really done many lessons. I said, well, we have. We've done really practical things such as science experiments in the kitchen. We've gone to the library. She's picked her own books that she's interested in. Might have taught her a bit about Brexit and politics last night. What with the uh, no confidence vote being consuming our TV screens. Yeah. Um but she's going to have, um, well, it's already set up. She's got a tutor that's going to visit her every Friday, do a couple hours of, um, of tutoring and also checking her work from the week. She's got uh, an online package with a company called Ed Place and they, that follows the national curriculum actually because she absolutely will do her GCSEs, um, because we need them. I know that we need them because I don't have any. So I know that we need them. Um, she so she absolutely is doing those. I'm doing those privately at a local uh, boarding school. Now, what happens is that with that, you, you just go in and you have to pay a certain amount of money per GCSE they do. And then they just sit them there. But because the way the school's set up, it's a very small hall and, and the teachers are fantastic and everything. So she, she will be doing a, a GCSE, an IGCSE, an international GCSE. Um, but you know, she's, she's not even 11 yet. So this, this week so far, we, A, been letting her just kind of get her, her happiness back as well. Cause that was obviously yeah. the reason we pulled her out. Um, and she's going to be doing, she's got it on her phone and British Sign Language as a language. Oh, okay. Cause if there's one thing I've, I've learnt as I've kind of evolved from doing just autism advocacy into, kind of pan disabilities working in those kind of environments one thing we need is really good <laughs> british sign language people and um there, there's a course well the many courses online that you can do but uh it, it's something that she really enjoys doing particularly if she's having days where she doesn't want to talk she would always use signs that she'd made up herself which meant certain things so uh we went to a charity event on monday um uh, with scope and of course, they've got the British Sign Language interpreter there and um, translator. And she was just sat up the whole time copying the whole thing. And then, you know, most of it she's remembered because she's got very good kind of photographic mm. memory. But but she's going to be doing a course on that. But yeah, this week has just been kind of that that space between school and not school. Yeah. Um, so there have been lessons, but not in a not in a traditional sense this week. So it sounds like you're you're going to be very busy over the next few years. With <laughs> yeah. <laughs> juggling homeschool and, and everything else i've done it before if i hadn't done it before i'd be more scared but right. um my my middle daughter was home educated for two or three years um she left school i think she was 12 or 13 exactly the same reasons yeah. and um and that went really well she she's um i mean she's very very driven but but she did um she did did her gcses and got a's and b's so i've got the confidence that it's going to work yeah um, and even if it, even if I didn't have the confidence it was going to work, it's still the right choice for them. Yeah, that's, um, that's the main because thing, isn't it? you've got to be, you've got to be happy. Mm. And and uh, although I, I mean, I left school without any GCSEs, I did go on to do an apprenticeship, which was uh, kind of legal on, on legal stuff. And then I went to do um, to uh, do social sciences, psychology of open uni, 
and um, women's uh, health and human international human rights courses for Stanford, things like that. So um, uh, mental health, all these kind of things. So GCSEs aren't the be all and end all. But when you get to 16, 18 and they're still quite relevant in your life, yeah. it's really hard to get a job that's going to cover even your expenses. So, um, so yeah, I'm really, I'm really quite strict about them doing them. I mean, we've spoken a, a few things about your diagnosis and how that uh, sort of came to happen. You said even after your, your second daughter, your youngest daughter was diagnosed, that it still didn't sink in quite. What what was sort of the turning point that made you think, okay, I need to push for this now? I was Googling. I Google a lot. Me mm. and Google should actually, one of my cousins works for Google. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, he had a good, he went to Lucent, so we had a much better education. He's got a good job. God love him. But um, yeah, I, I, I Google everything um, and I was looking around and I did find a few bits about women and girls on the internet and there was a checklist, um, not a clinical checklist, a checklist that uh, an, an old autistic woman had written and put online and uh, and I just ticked every box, absolutely every box, you know, prefers animals to humans, yep. <laughs> there's this meme going around social media that says oh if you see a human you dodge them if you see a cow or a dog you go and say hi i am that person yeah. um I, I i love love animals and it was just all of these things and 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 it was just like somebody has uh watched my life taken minutes typed it up and shoved it on google for me to find 30 odd years later and um and that was that was one of the turning points there was many Many, many like seeds sown prior, yeah, from the whole life, obviously. But that was the one where I sat there and thought, oh, it's time to speak to someone now. It really is. Um, and and take this with me. That thank goodness for that checklist that was online. And then obviously you had your couple of experiences where you <laughs> they gave you reasons why you're not autistic, which proved to be completely false. But but then you did yeah. get your diagnosis. How did you feel when you actually got it? Massive relief. Absolutely. Relief, I yeah. already knew. I yeah. already knew. But by then the jigsaw had all kind of gone into gone into place. I already knew. I was terrified of not being told that I wasn't autistic. I was terrified of it being something else. Mm, um, okay. And and people can be incredibly cruel if you're different. And I don't think. I guess it's subjective, but what people are told, you know, I don't look disabled. Um, and and that's quite tricky. Because although some people might like that, because you can kind of pass for normal, but it's the passing for normal that makes you really vulnerable. Because people don't understand your vulnerabilities; they yeah. don't understand that you might need a little bit of time. And yeah, it's that that kind of passing passing for normal can be a, a really tricky place. And it, it was almost like I was living in no man's land. I wasn't normal enough. I'm normal enough <laughs> to, um, to 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 be able to cope with everything. And I wasn't, you know, get by in life, and I wasn't quite disabled enough to to be given any any good support. So the diagnosis was, yeah, was massive, massive for me. Hence why I filmed it. Uh, I don't want anyone else to ever feel that lonely again. I don't want all of the experiences, far more than I've mentioned on here, that I I, I didn't want all that to go to go to vain in vain. You know, I wanted there to be something positive for other people to come out of it. It's been very cathartic, you know. But yeah, it was it was a massive relief. And did you feel a bit, I don't know, I I just sort of imagine if it happened to me, I'd f- almost feel a little bit resentful about not getting it earlier and everything else that's passed yeah. when I was younger. Yeah, there is that. There is, but there was no one to blame. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the thing, but there's definitely that. 
not so much now. I don't really feel that way at all now. But particularly when I first found out, I was very, um, I was quite cross, actually, because I thought, well, if, if our doctors had known about uh, autism and girls back in the 80s, as well as they did about the boys, then all of these experiences and all of these things that had happened would not have happened. Mm. My life would be completely different. And it's really, on, honestly, quite weird. It's almost like as if there was this parallel other one that it was that, that got the support and what would have happened to her. And uh, and I'm really actually, um, I, you just have to let that go because yeah. it will consume you if you think about that too much. Um, the way I deal with that uh, on a personal level is to just keep going and, and keep making sure that by being one of the first to stand up, one of the last that it happens to. And um, and that's that's the way I cope with it. If I if I thought about it too much, it would just it would eat me up. So I just um, I just keep going. How has it helped you since you've had the diagnosis? Oh, loads, absolutely loads. I'm so, I'm a much nicer person. I didn't realise that I was um, naturally predispositioned to be very black and white about things. So um, I still can't see the grey areas. I see the colourful bits in between. So <laughs> people are like, oh, you're autistic, you can't see a grey area. I'm like, no, I can't. But I can see like a whole spectrum of different colours and questions and answers <laughs> and, and possibilities in between that black and white. I think I'm a much a much better person or a much better friend. Um, I've been single 10 years, but in, in, when, in, when the time comes I meet someone special, I'll be a much better girlfriend or wife. Yeah, because I I can see things from other people's points point of view. Yeah, um, I'm a much better mother. Um, I don't think I was ever a bad mum. I've always tried really hard, but I, and now I think I'm much better because I think you need to be able to understand yourself in order to help other people understand themselves. Yeah, definitely. And um, I was just such a young mum. I was never given, regardless of autism or not, I was a really young mum. I was 15, so I didn't have that that space to grow, which most people have before. They, they have responsibilities in their life. So, um, yeah, I just think it's, I think it's brilliant. I just wish I'd known sooner. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. And is there, is there any changes you've made to your life? Because you know you're autistic, you know you've learnt so much about autism. Like, yeah. Have you adapted certain things in your life to make things easier for yourself? Or Yeah, I don't feel guilty about coming home from, um, be it from work or whatever. And getting straight back into my fleecy onesie. <laughs> like before, I would have been really hard on myself thinking I'd become a slob. Right, Or okay. thinking that I was lazy. <laughs> no way. I'm coming back. I'm putting my, you know, I'm putting my, uh, putting my fleecy onesie on. I've got a union flag onesie. It's just always in the own cupboard. It's always left warm. That goes on. I, um, I, I give myself time out if i know i'm going to do something say it was something filming lots of bright lights the day before i'll try and be at home and not have the big lights on no one could ever understand why i never no my electricity bill was so low <laughs> <laughs> big lights are never on so it's like little yeah. twinkly lights everywhere or or little candle type things where big lights don't happen so yeah i'm just i'm, I'm a lot kinder to myself i i don't socialize as much i used to think it was normal everyone goes out on a friday night or everyone does this i must go out i must be more social and then to be social it's really scary and you know i think well if i have an extra glass of wine before i go out things like that just to cope with it and that's not good for your health and um so i'm just like i'm just gonna stay in i'm gonna watch i don't know bodyguard or i'm going to watch love actually or something whatever i'm gonna watch a box set i'm gonna watch netflix i'm just gonna you know i don't pressure and maybe that's just some older as well now but i I don't pressurise myself to do anything social 
Um, my social life comes out of volunteering. That's my social life. And, and working is my social life. That's, that's the only time I really spend time with other adults. Otherwise, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I take parenting really, really seriously. And, uh, and it's just me and my, my girls. Otherwise, I don't, I don't really do anything else. So, yeah, so that links nicely to sort of what I was going to talk to you about next is it seems that since your diagnosis and, and your girl's diagnosis, you, like, you've almost found a real purpose in your life and, uh, yeah. and a, a whole new career. And that's obviously how I, I got to sort of hear about you and, and know a little bit about your story. So do you want to tell everyone a bit about that and how, how that came around? Yeah, so I started advocacy um, and the majority of it from 2008 up until actually last November. I went self-employed last November. Most of it was um, voluntary or expenses. But that, that started off doing quite silly things uh, and then ended up being like at the United Nations or at Parliament uh, or at Cannes Film Festival. And, and I wished I could have kept that voluntary forever. Unfortunately, my mortgage provider does not agree with me. Yeah. Definitely wants his mortgage paid. So <laughs> yeah, I'm self-employed. So, so yeah, I, I juggled. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a carer, uh, a home ed mum, a single mum, an autistic woman and self-employed. <laughs> so, um, woman of many hats. Well, yeah, destined to have a nervous breakdown by the time 40, probably. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it's all good for a good cause. So, uh, yeah, my work varies. I've got a little office about five minute walk from my house. I got that. I could have done a lot of the work from home, but it's, I have people come to me that I don't know. And obviously my home is where my children are. So yeah. I can't invite people into my home that I don't know that would be safe. So I've got a little office down the road. People come and see me. It could be a woman that's going for a late diagnosis. It could be a mum of a teenage girl that needs some support. Um, it could be a dad. A lot of dads come in to, uh, to speak about their, their young girls. I do that. I review websites. That's the, some of the jobs I love. People are like, we're doing this new website and we need you to either write it or we need you to review it. They're the best jobs in the world because I can get up at 4 a.m., do that work, that's signed off, and then I can get on with the day caring for my daughter as if I didn't have a job. I love anything that's online because it just means if I get up a couple of hours earlier, I can work before I start working, if that makes sense. It could be new courses. A lot of national charities will get in touch with me saying we're writing a new course, need you to write the content. Love jobs like that. But uh, traveling, particularly when it comes to um, autism women and girls, most likely going back out to um, Geneva to the UN in February or March of next year. Wow. Um, to, yeah, most likely. I'm writing a shadow report at the minute. I'm going to put something on, on Twitter, actually, um, probably today. I need some need some feedback of good models of practice in the UK to share internationally when it comes to um, uh, well, CEDAW, which is a Convention on Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, which is basically let's keep our women safe. Yeah. And um, and and the UK are actually coming under questioning um, in in February, so I'm, I'm writing a shadow report solely about disabled women um, to to go out there, um, and it's not a complaint. So uh, this is what's going on. But look, these are all the good things that are going on too. Why don't the other countries try this as well? So I'm going to put something online today. And then also that's going to go into a course because I've, I've done the online course, uh, which is called Boundaries, Bodies, Abuse and Reporting for Autistic Girls. Made that two years ago. And that's a free online safeguarding course aimed at younger women and girls. So I'm doing one for adults now um, because I think it's needed. And that's going to cover real gritty, actually, gritty mm. adult subjects. Um, such as consent, safe sex, um, HIV, cuckooing. Um, I don't know if anyone knows what cuckooing is. No, but it's what's, a, what's that? It's where um, you might have a vulnerable woman and then somebody comes along, 
pretending to be there, wanting to be in a relationship with them. But what they really do is push them out of their home. So they're taking the house. And, oh, um, wow. yeah, and the, our police are really hot on it now. It's called cuckooing. happens a lot, particularly mm. to autistic. We've spoken to a lot of autistic women where that has happened. Um, and it's obviously after the cookie bird because the cookie bird yeah. is the same okay. thing. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. No, yeah. yeah, so uh, financial abuse, divorce, women that have gone into sex work or trafficking. That's um, we know that a lot of autistic women are very vulnerable to human trafficking. Um, so it's it's really gritty. <laughs> um, mental health smear tests. This is one thing we need. I was at the uh, NHS ten year autism consultancy inquiry, and uh, there was a nurse, cancer nurse there, and she said autistic people don't get um, they get the cancer diagnosis later because of our interception, our sensory issues. We might not realise something's going wrong until a lot later. Right. Now. Only before that, I was thinking about home med girls and, and the fact that we don't get our HPV vaccinations because you know, we're, out of, we're out of the education system. Immunizations go through the educational system. So not only have we now got a pool of young girls that haven't had their HPV, they're also not going to have trouble going to the, get their smear test done for sensory issues. And on top of that, they've got interception problems and can't pick up their, their, their illness until a lot later. So it's no it's no wonder that, you know, they say the uh, life expectancy of um, autistic research says our, our mean average age is of, of expectancy is 37. 37? 37. A lot of that is down to um, epilepsy. A lot of that is down right. to suicide. And okay. I think the third one's cancer. So um, it's not surprising, is it? And as a 36 and a half year old, that's quite a, yeah. <laughs> it's quite a worrying statistic. <laughs> so I better get moving. I haven't got long. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to put that on the course. I want to talk about smear tests. I want to talk about HPV vaccinations, how to get one if you didn't get them at school. Um, coercive control, something that Theresa May put in as Home Secretary was coercive control, being in relationships where it's uh, psychological, financial abuse. Or emotional. I want to talk about that because um, a lot, a lot of autistic people in relationships might be too scared of the change to leave or not recognise that's abuse in the first place. Um, and then just lots of fun stuff as well, like jargon and flirting. If somebody asks you for a cup of coffee, are they really asking you for a cup of coffee? If somebody, you yeah. know, or if okay, somebody yeah. says, says, do you want a cup of coffee? And it's one a.m. Is that different to perhaps the local vicar asking you for a cup of coffee yeah. at eleven a.m.? I hope so. <laughs> Who yeah. knows? Maybe it's not. But, but, you know, so that's obviously something that's not suitable for a younger mm. audience, 18 plus, but it's really important things. And I think those subjects tie in really nicely with the CEDAW ratification. So it's 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 a bit of a uh, trying to kill two birds with one stone, but but it can be done. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's my next obsession. It's your next project, <laughs> yeah. If, 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 uh, yeah. To use a, to use a horrible ableist terminology that's 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 the next project yeah well it sounds like you're a very busy woman you're uh and you can well it's very clear to see how passionate you are about all these subjects as well which is great yeah yeah incredibly passionate about it um i must remind myself to leave the house sometimes and actually <laughs> have some form of a social life but they're overrated aren't they yeah so um <laughs> so yeah and was it last year that uh you received an mba it was this well yeah it was last new year's honors list and then last it was new this year's May. List. okay yeah so yeah that's amazing my parents are incredibly proud i, bet. I didn't think they'd ever see the day they'd be proud of me that was that day that one day <laughs> so what, um, what was yeah, that like was, yeah incredible absolutely incredible it still doesn't feel real it feels like it was meant for someone else 
I'm, I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful. Um, and just to be and, clear, it's in recognition of all the advocacy and the, the work yeah, that you've been doing. It's services to, to people with autism. That's fantastic. Um, I just hope to do more. I hope yeah. to do more. I hope to keep going. I don't want to become complacent, complacent just because I've been uh, recognised. I want to make sure that this is um, is a very nice springboard mm. to making sure we've got a pocket-free UK. We're having real trouble in the Midlands when it comes to autistic women. We're having real trouble in um, black and Asian minorities. I have a lot of people from Birmingham drive down from Birmingham to come and visit me in my little Arbfield office. Um, so the National Trust and, uh, and, a, and a group called Non-Zero One made 25 UK women into statues this year and and I was one of them which oh, really? was wow. yeah it's it's really strange seeing yourself yeah, in a <laughs> they didn't make me any thinner though no like there was a good opportunity there wasn't there but <laughs> no, they were yeah, a great well, bunch were you happy with the the statue of yourself yes I was incredibly happy and the reason I was incredibly happy was because we could pick where our forever home would be so I pitched the Midlands, a place called Droitwich, which is not far from Birmingham, um, Wolverhampton. That's a little bit further from Wolverhampton, but it's, it's, it's up there in the Midlands. And um, a place called Hanbury Hall, which mm. was owned by um, a, a legal family um, in the Georgian times. They were all um, lawyers and solicitors of the Georgian times. And I quite liked that link because I help a lot of women in legal cases in court. And, uh, and, and it's in the right place because there's not enough autism and women um, awareness uh, in, in kind of Birmingham, Middle East, yeah. which way. So that will be there forever, which is lovely. Um, I must go and visit myself sometime. Yeah, you should. Definitely. <laughs> um, we did go up there for the, for the launch of it and it was, it was really good fun. Um, and, and, uh, and, but yeah, it's just, it's just about getting, getting aware we need a pocket, a pocket free UK fast. Mm. And if, if if the NBE can can make that happen, then thank goodness, thank goodness. Cause, uh, yeah, and hopefully the, it adds some weight to everything that you're doing and, and saying, and, and gets you know the message you're you're putting out there to to be heard a bit more easily. Yeah, it's really strange actually. If you write an email and just write it Carly with a smiley face, someone replies. If you write Carly MBE, everyone replies. Yeah. So it's quite nice for people imagine, actually yeah. to 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 send an email back now. It's mm. quite an enigma. so for everyone listening how can they find out more about you um what are the sort of things that you can do or that they can come and speak to you about what's the best way to get in touch with you um i i've got a website which is britishautismadvocate.simple that's s-i-m-p-l without an e britishautismadvocate.simple.com Mm-hmm. That's my website. My email is BritishAutismAdvocate at gmail.com. If I'm late replying to things, um, which I often am, I think all of my emails start, really sorry for the late reply, and I really am sorry. It is, um, there, I don't have a PA. I don't have anyone that works for me or with me. It is literally a sole mission. Most of these emails are done with one hand doing the washing up and the other one doing the email whilst trying to get on with them. Um, of my care and duties as well. So my, I'm always late unless it's incredibly urgent. If it is urgent, put in the reference thing, urgent, urgent, and I'll, I'll kind of skim past it and get to it. So that's just a, a bit of a, a bit of a warning on that one. I'm not being rude and it's not that I don't care. I really do care. Yeah. There's that way. I'm on Twitter, um, at Carly Jones MBE. I'm on Facebook. If you add me on Facebook, 
just be prepared. Loads of pictures of my cats. Um, <laughs> I, I am obsessed with my cats. I've got two, Pop and Chester. Sometimes I'll go and do a really professional PowerPoint. And when it comes to a quite a touching subject, I'll just put some photos of my cats in there. <laughs> and people are like, oh, what a lovely touch. She's trying to make it easier. I just want to see my cats. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's purely for <laughs> um, But, you know, I haven't got sacked yet. So that's just the warning. Heads up for that one. I can help out with lots of things. Um, if you are, are a teenage girl and you're going off to your first festival at Reading or Leeds and you need a letter for the um, accessibility, as long as I've seen proof, of the fact you've got disability, I can write those letters for you. Families that are going to theme parks, I can write those letters for you as long as I've seen the proof because we're coming to a grey area of autism there again, but I'll, I'll skim past that. I can help people with PIP. I can help people, these kind of things I can do without coming to Arbfield. Um, I can help with all sorts of manner of things. If you want to come down to the office in Arbourfield, I'm, 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 I'm cheap. <laughs> I, I do it to cover, literally cover the time and the rent. And um, I've got a little lending library of every autism book and leaflet you could imagine. Um, the best thing about having my little office is just now doesn't take up my whole home. Um, so that's that's nice to have a, a little place there. I make a great cup of tea. We can have a chat, talk things over. Oh, I also do safeguarding training. The courses online are free and always will be, but I can come to a workplace or indeed uh, at my office there's a conference room. I can set up training there for, for young people individually or parents of young people in a, in a group. TV and media stuff, I do lots of that, part of the BBC Plus. It's all on the website, but I, I should just get a T-shirt that says hiring autistic. I'm quite good <laughs> with policy as well. I'm quite good at because uh, uh, I've written a lot of um, submissions to, to, to committees at Parliament which have been accepted and published and, and human rights and things like that. So I'm quite yeah. good at policy, and I think that comes down from the legal apprenticeship as well. So, yeah, if, if, I, if I can't help you, I definitely know someone that can. So just be in touch if you need something. Perfect. Well, yeah, I'll I'll make sure I link all of that up um, on my blog and and on the podcast notes. Just before I ask you the final question, I just wanted to say thank you for uh, taking the time to join me today. And I've loved getting to talk to you. Um, I found it really, really inspiring, just like I do whenever I read your Twitter feed and all the things that you're up to. And and yeah, thank you for for all that you do. Um, I'm sure you've helped many many families uh, across the uk and you're definitely raising awareness um, and acceptance about autism in girls and and like you said about many disabilities in general so keep doing what you're doing it's, it seems like you're doing fantastic work thank you james i really appreciate it. and thanks to autism stories for getting these stories out into into the mainstream if you like it's um incredibly important and thank you for putting up with my manly fluey <laughs> voice i'm gonna go and uh, Drink some Lemsip now, I think. Perfect. Um, just before you go, uh, so just final question I ask everyone. What's yep. one thing you'd like the rest of the world to know about autism? Oh, that's a really good one, isn't it? The one thing I'd like everyone to know, um, not to be afraid. Not to be afraid of being our friends. Not to be afraid of, in the media sometimes, when we hear about autism, if we haven't invented something that's worth a Nobel Peace Prize, we're probably a serial killer. That's the only, <laughs> that's the, <laughs> that's the only reflection. I can't even kill a spider. It's in my own patch. I quite like spiders. It's also not too big. Um, I can't even kill a spider. It's in the house. I pick it up and put it in the garden. You know, this empathy thing. We've got yeah. no empathy. We have buckets of empathy. Buckets. It's just shown very, very differently. I care about other people far more than I care about myself. And um, uh, don't be afraid to be our friends. Don't be afraid to be in a relationship with an autistic person. It's not 
you know, at the end of the day, um, autistic adults are only just in the last seven, five years. You know, the ones that weren't picked up as kids are only just starting to get picked up now. There are many, many autistic people doing wonderful, kind, everyday things. We're just people. Everyday things in society and in their personal lives. Just, you know, don't, don't be afraid of it. It's, it's nothing scary at all. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Carly. Thank you, James. massive thank you to Carly for joining me on the podcast today I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did getting to talk to her and getting to know her story if you want to know more about Carly make sure to check out the show notes where you'll find links to her blog or you'll also find it on my website hit the subscribe button and there'll be a new episode next week thanks for listening